This case will keep you up at night. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. It's so far-fetched. It has to be fiction, but no. The disappearance of Dorothy Jane Scott is a true story, and it's still unsolved. Now, she was a creature of habit. Her routine centered around four things. Her son, her family, her job, and her church. She didn't drink. She didn't do drugs. She didn't date. Maybe some people thought her life was a little dull, but she was content. Now, how does a woman like that die at the hands of an obsessive stalker? Hey, I'm Amy. Thanks for watching True Crime Recaps. I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you all so much for taking some time out of your day to check out this video. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, I hope you'll take a second to subscribe so you never miss a recap. Now, let's talk about Dorothy Scott. She was 32 years old with a four-year-old son, Shanti. Everyone called him Sean. The boy's father, Dennis Terry, lived thousands of miles away in Missouri. Dorothy and Sean lived with her aunt in Stanton, California, less than 20 minutes from her parents in Anaheim. The whole family was very close. She lived a quiet, ordinary life, except for one thing. For months, Dorothy had been getting bizarre phone calls from a taunting man with a voice that she couldn't quite place. She didn't know him. She never saw him, but she knew he was watching and it all came to a head with a spider bite. The last day she was seen, May 28, 1980, started like any other Wednesday. She woke up, she made breakfast for Sean, and she got the two of them dressed and out the door. You know the routine. She dropped him off with her parents and she continued on to the office. She worked as a secretary for the owners of Swingers Gift Shop and Custom Johns in Anaheim. Despite the names, they weren't quite as X-rated as they sounded. They were basically head shops that sold psychedelic paraphernalia. At one time, Swingers was the family business, which sounds really weird to say, but again, it's it's not quite as sexy as it sounds. Her father, Jacob Scott, was a co-owner before selling it to Custom Johns. Her parents still lived near the office, so they took care of their grandson while Dorothy was at work. Now that night, Sean was going to be at their place longer than usual because she had a staff meeting scheduled after the stores closed. While the employees were all sitting around hearing about the newest products and procedures, you know, it's like business talk, Dorothy started to worry about one of her coworkers, Conrad Bostron. He'd been fidgeting and complaining about being in pain all evening, and a wound on his arm looked raised and infected. She was like, I'm driving you to the hospital, like right now. And it was a good thing she did. Another coworker, Pam Head, volunteered to come along. The trio arrived at UCI Medical Center to discover that he was bitten by a black widow spider, and the infection needed treatment. On the way to the hospital, Dorothy had stopped at her parents' house to check on Sean and let them know what was happening. On her way out, at around 9 p.m., she changed her black scarf to a red one. While Conrad was being treated, Pam and Dorothy watched some TV. They read a few magazines in the waiting room until he was discharged around 11. Now, Pam stayed with the patient to complete insurance, paperwork, fill a prescription, but Dorothy headed out to grab her car, you know, so she could pick him up at the entrance. Well, they stood outside waiting on her for a while, like long enough for them to wonder what was taking so long. Finally, her 1973 white Toyota station wagon appeared, only it didn't stop. 
It sped past while they tried to flag it down. But the brights were shining too brightly in their eyes to see who was behind the wheel. The car swung out of the parking lot to the right, and the pair ran after it for a moment. It sped up, leaving them in the dark, stranded and confused. As for Dorothy, she would never be seen alive again. Now, the mystery of her disappearance began months earlier when she got her first phone call. The unknown caller alternated between love and hate, eventually escalating to these ominous threats that left Dorothy shaken. The calls were coming every day, both at home and at work. In one call, the man told Dorothy he left her a gift outside. It was a dead rose lying on the hood of her car. The symbolism wasn't lost on Dorothy. This was when she understood that she must do everything within her power to protect herself and her son. She started taking karate for self-defense. She even considered arming herself, but it was not in her nature to own a gun, and she didn't want her four-year-old to get a hold of it. She believed the caller was someone she knew, but the mystery man never hinted at his name or where he was calling from, but he certainly knew a lot about her. He knew her movements, what she was wearing, when she was at work. In one blood-curdling phone call, he told her, okay, now you are going to come my way. And when I get you alone, I will cut you up into bits so no one will ever find you. On the night of her disappearance, Dorothy's colleagues called the police from the medical center. At first, they assumed she'd had an emergency and rushed off to check on her son. But after two hours passed and she never came back, they knew something was very wrong. The police didn't think there was anything to worry about, not until they found her car. In the early hours of the next morning, they found her station wagon in flames. Someone had set it on fire in an alley 10 miles from the hospital. No one was in the car. So was she still alive? Well, the longer she remained missing, the fear for her safety grew. A week after she disappeared, her parents got a phone call. The voice on the line said, are you related to Dorothy Scott? And when Vera told him she was, he said, well, I've got her. The police were treating Dorothy's case as a kidnapping, so they requested that Vera and Jacob, you know, don't say anything to the press. They didn't want any evidence or leads compromised. But things weren't moving fast enough for Jacob, and after receiving the stalker's phone call, he couldn't hold out. He approached a local paper, the Orange County Register, and he told them about his daughter's disappearance. The newspaper quotes him as saying, the light at the end of the tunnel seems to be getting dim. Now get this. On June 12, 1980, the day that the paper published its first article about Dorothy's case, the Orange County Register got a phone call. The Register's managing editor, Pat Riley, answered. Now, the caller, who has never been identified, he claimed to be Dorothy's killer. He also claimed that he had a motive for taking her life. He said that she'd been unfaithful to him with another man. He said that he loved her and she betrayed him said he'd met Dorothy at the medical center to confront her and she denied her involvement with another man. He said twice that he killed her. He also claimed that she had called him from the hospital, but Pam insisted that the only time Dorothy was out of her sight was when she stopped in the bathroom on her way out to the parking lot. To prove he was who he said he was, the caller also revealed how much he knew about Dorothy and he knew a lot. He knew why they were at the hospital, 
The details of the spider bite hadn't been published, and he even knew the colors of the scarves that she was wearing the day that she went missing. The black scarf, she switched to red. Now, other than the mystery caller, there were no strong leads. Jacob told investigators that Dorothy didn't have a boyfriend, saying she worked from morning to evening. She might have had an occasional date, but they were few and far between. Now, police did question Dorothy's ex, Dennis Terry, along with customers who came to the head shops where she worked. But Dennis had an airtight alibi. He was across the country the day of the kidnapping. No other suspects cropped up in their investigation. It became clear that the calls were no sick hoax, which often occurs in high-profile murder cases. But after analyzing the call to the paper, police believed they had their suspect. It became paramount that they uncover his identity. But just as he tortured his victim with phone calls before her death, the mystery man tortured her parents with claims that he killed her. It seemed to be like part of this sick game for him. For four years, he called nearly every week, like clockwork, on Wednesdays. Probably not a coincidence that it was the same day of the week when he took Dorothy. Although he would only talk to Vera, Jacob described his voice as soft-spoken. Though the calls were torture, Vera and Jacob never changed their number in the hopes that if this man truly had their daughter, he might allow them to speak to her. He told them he knew where she was, but he also said he killed her. The police tapped the phone, but they were never able to trace the calls that continued to come into their house. The caller was always brief. He was careful to never stay on the line long enough for them to trace him. And yet, he continued to call, continued to torment, until one day Jacob answered the phone. And he always asked, is Dorothy home? But this time when Jacob answered instead of Vera, the caller claimed he dialed the wrong number. After that, the call stopped for a time. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be the last they heard from him. Not long after the call stopped, the police finally had a big break in the case. On August 6, 1984, more than four years after Dorothy disappeared, partially burnt human remains were found at a construction site 10 miles from where Dorothy's car had been found. A Pacific Bell subcontractor came across the bones 30 feet from Santa Ana Canyon Road. They were submerged partially in the soil alongside the remains of a dog. A skull, arm, pelvis, and two thigh bones were analyzed and discovered to be Dorothy's remains. A comparison of dental records confirmed her identity. A turquoise ring and watch were both identified by Vera as Dorothy's. The watch was stopped at 12.32 a.m. on May 29th, an hour after her colleagues had last seen her at the hospital. Now, Vera and Jacob had finally found their daughter. A brush fire had swept across the area in the fall of 1982. This led investigators to estimate that the charred bones had been there for at least two years. Based on the remains, they couldn't determine the cause of death. And though the search for their daughter was over, the search for her murderer continued. And so did the suspect's calls. When news broke about the discovery of Dorothy's remains, the caller phoned again. Same routine. When Vera answered, he would ask if Dorothy was home. Super creepy. Is Dorothy home? And he'd just hang up. And finally, he hung up for the last time. But for the rest of their lives, the man who killed Vera and Jacob's daughter remained free. 
Jacob lived for 10 more years after Dorothy was found. He died on April 23, 1994, what would have been Dorothy's 46th birthday. And some say he died of grief. But Vera lived only for another eight years. She passed on in 2002. They never saw justice in their lifetimes or even after their death. Neither has Dorothy's son. To this date, Dorothy Jane Scott's case remains unsolved.